starting about the, an underdog story. We often like underdog stories, you know, the, the one that no one ever thought they would win. No one thought that team could do it or that individual could do it, right? The, the David and Goliath story, right? The, 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 the kid going against a mighty warrior. And uh, what, what I bet you'd observe, it doesn't matter what sport you watch, uh, whether it was a tennis match or basketball or baseball, at the end of the championship, there's always... Uh, they'll come interview the victor, and if they were underdogs, they say things like this. Everyone doubted us this whole year. Have you ever heard that? No one believed we had a shot. No one, everyone counted us out. Have you ever heard those kind of things? And so there's this, this like, we did it. And the, the other sentiment you might hear is, how do you like me now? Right? Look, you thought we were terrible. You thought we'd stink. You thought we'd, how do you like me now? Maybe that's some of the, what you've you know, gone back to your high school teacher, right? How do you like me now? You thought I'd never make it, right? You thought I'd be on the street. How do you like me now? I made it. I don't know. There's those moments of, of vindication, right? You thought I was a failure. You thought we couldn't do it. You thought it would never work. And there's this, this desire to prove it, to show, hey, we did it. Hey, we overcame. No one believed in me. And I was thinking of that for the Easter story that we're celebrating. There's no greater overcoming the odds victory. They took Jesus, nailed him to a cross, pulled him down, put him in a tomb, rolled a stone in front of it, and then Sunday morning they found it open. He's not in there. He's appearing to people. He's alive. And we're going to look and say, well, what does he do? Does he show up on people's doorstep? Ha, you thought you killed me. How do you like me now, right? You thought, you thought I would never come back. How do you like, do we see that? What is he doing? Where does Jesus go? Where do we find him on the moment of resurrection? Where, what's he doing? And what we're going to see today, it, it's nothing to do with that. It's nothing to do with in your face, nothing to do with gloating, nothing to do with that. He's actually calling people. He's calling people. So our, our point today is quite simple and, and focused on the Easter story that Jesus died and rose, and he's calling your name. He's calling people's names. So we're going to look at that today. What I want to do, though, is root our study, our look today, in a clear sense of Jesus' death. We're going to look at that from John chapter 19 today, and we're going to look at a a lengthier part because I want us to have the full story when we look at it. I want us to understand what Jesus suffered, went to a cross, and then we're going to look at the events of Sunday morning, the resurrection events. Because Jesus was very clear about his purpose in coming. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He knew his purpose was to come and die. So if you want to turn there, you can take a Bible. There's some in front of you. You have one. You have one at home. It'll be up here as well. And we're going to look at uh, John 19, 1 to 18. And then we'll jump down to 28 and just follow through the events of the death of Jesus. And then we'll look at the resurrection of Jesus. So John 19. At this point, Jesus has been handed over by a disciple. He's been handed now over to the Roman official of the area named Pilate, a Roman governor who's trying him. So this is John 19.1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. 
A flogging or a scourging is a whip with multiple strands, and in the strands is tied in bone and rock, sharp objects, so that when you're whipped, it pulls flesh back. So he's being absolutely brutalized here. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. It's a pretty rough uh, treatment for someone who's not guilty. But there's this complete mocking and shaming going on. They throw purple on him like a color of the color of royalty. Here's a king. Here's what we do to opposing kings. Here's what we do to them. We mock him and beat him. Who's really in control here? So Jesus came out. Oh, wait, we went to that. Verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him in yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? See, he thought he was dealing with a political opponent, someone that might be challenging the throne. All of a sudden, wait, son of God talk. This is different. What are we talking about here? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? What do you mean not talking to me? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus just calmly lets them know, this is all God's plan. You're not calling the shots here. I'm calling the shots here. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Complete, total sellout. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So he was clearly found innocent, no real charges, and now he's handed over. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. He's nailed to a wooden cross, propped up in the air, hanging there like a piece of meat. So I'm going to jump down to verse 28 and keep going with the story. Jump down to John 19, verse 28, and look at some of the interaction on the cross. He's on there. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 
When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. So they wanted to get them down so they could participate. If you're in contact with a dead body, you can't participate in the festivities. So they want to get them done and down. So the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and then they might be taken away. Because the crucifixion death was a slow death. It could be days. You could hang there for days. So they would hang there, and to get air, you'd have to kind of push up and get air and then hang back down. So if your legs are broken, you can't push up anymore, and you die quicker. So they asked, can we break their legs? But one of the soldiers, let's see, but when they came to Jesus, verse 33, when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and, again another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. It was a lot to anoint and prepare, embalm. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as the bur- is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, and in which no one had, never, had ever been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So we have Jesus suffering, dying on a cross, pierced in the side. Now he's been wrapped, embalmed, and put in a tomb. That was the death of Jesus. And I want to look at what happens early on a Sunday morning that we're celebrating today. I want to see what he does and see, who he, see his reaction, see his response, see who he's talking to. So we're in John chapter 20, verse 1, the first day of the week. That's a Sunday. They counted the week Sunday to Saturday. So Sunday morning... Mary Magdalene. Mary is a follower of Jesus, one who had actually been demon-possessed. And Jesus had cleansed her and freed her from that. And so she's following. Think of that. Your life is filled with demons. You're freed from that. And now, how would you view Jesus? You, you would do anything. This guy saved me and changed me. So she's a follower of him. And now, the worst things happened. The guy that healed her is now killed. So she's first thing, I'm going. And I want you to notice her purpose. She's going she's to reveal what she's looking for. But she's going while it's still dark. It's early in the morning. And saw that the stone had been taken away. Now that would freak you out. I've done plenty of uh, graveside services and funerals. And I've never showed up one and like the dirt's all dug back out. 
and flip the things open. He'd be like, whoa, 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 right? You'd be freaked out. She's coming to a tomb. The rock's supposed to be there. Now the rock isn't there. And you're going, wait, what am I encountering? What am I looking for? So she ran. So she just goes back. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples. She's like, I'm going to go get the guys here. The one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord. I lost my place. What verse? I'm at the beginning here. So she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So what is she thinking? Body has been taken. Body is gone. Body isn't there. She's probably thinking they did a worse thing to him. First they killed him. Then they put him in a tomb. Now someone stole it. Are they prating it around? Are they hanging it up somewhere? Are they dragging him through the streets? What are they doing? There's a worse thing. It's probably in her mind. So she went, so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. You gotta love the competitiveness of guys. We were both running, but actually I was faster. I was faster than Peter. He was slow. I'm first. Anyways. So stooping to look in. So it's a low opening. So they bend down to look in there. So he stooped to look in. And he saw the linen cloths lying there. So the grave clothes are off and lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Peter's kind of the go for it, think later. You know, I'm just going to run right into this tomb. Let's see what we find. He runs right in there. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So, you know, grave robbers probably wouldn't do that. (laughs) It's nicely folded. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. John looks around and goes, he's alive. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. It hadn't clicked in. They didn't think that's what they were going to find. And then they see the empty tomb. Says so then the disciples went back to their homes. Like, why don't you look around for a minute, boys? Don't you think like, well, we saw it. Let's go. They just go home. It says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. So she stayed. She stayed. She's weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look in. I would imagine just the, the, the ugly cry. You're just weeping. It's not just tears in your eyes. You're weeping. And it's a low entry. So can you imagine wanting to look in there? But I don't want to look in there. Do I want to see what's in there? I don't want to see what's in there. And she opens it, what's it she says? She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. <gasps> Wouldn't you just heart jump? Two angels are in there? One at the head and one at the feet. And they said, woman, why are you weeping? Well, I'm crying because Jesus is dead, right? She said to them, again, notice what she's looking for. They have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. She's still looking for a body. Where did they put the body? What did they do with the body? Where is it? Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. She doesn't recognize him. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She's probably thinking, what's with you guys in these questions? Someone's died and I'm upset, right? What is with this question? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, 
and I will take him away. She's still saying, where'd you put it? I'll get him. I'll honor him. I'll make sure it's done right. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. That's what she called him. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that had said these things to her. So we have Mary finding Jesus alive. I want to go back and look at a few details from this that kind of walk us through what's happening. First, there's the interesting detail of Mary's non-recognition. He's alive, he's standing there, he talks to her, and she doesn't know it's him. She doesn't realize. Look back there in verse 15. Right? He comes up, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Right? She thinks he just works there or something. She said, if you've carried him away... T- Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She's looking for the body. She's thinking body, body, body. And I think she wants to honor him, though I don't think she's going to be very clear here. The average male is five foot nine and 180 to 190 pounds. The average American male was slightly bigger, but I'll use more international numbers. Uh, so can you imagine that? Ladies, you feel like picking up a 180-pound body? What are you going to actually do? And what it, how much spices and stuff did they put on it? He told us. 75 pounds. This thing is going to be heavy. So I don't think she's very clear on what's actually going on. I think there's a sense of devotion, though. I want to make sure he's not dishonored further. I will take him away. But here's this interesting thing. <laughs> Why does she think he's the gardener? Like she's been with him now. She's followed him for some time, maybe a year, maybe more. I don't know the length of time. You think she sees a glance. It's him, but she thinks he's the gardener. Why does she think he's the gardener? If you go to a park today, let's say you go down to Lake Patton, you go down to Blow Del Donovan, you go down to Boulevard, and you walk around the park, you're going to see people all over there today, walking dogs, riding bikes, pushing strollers, having a picnic. You're going to see all those people. Which people would you walk up to and say, you're the gardener? It'd probably be the guy who's gardening, right? Got the uniform, might have some gardening tools, might have the white city truck, right? You wouldn't just walk up to some other person and say, you know, that that garbage can's full over there. Could you empty that? We're, We're trying to have a picnic here. You wouldn't do that. You'd look for an official. You'd look for the gardener. So why... Does he look like the gardener to her? Is he gardening? Is he holding flowers? Has he been pruning? Now this idea came from my friend Pastor Bruce, and he, he wondered this, and I like this. The gardener, well, Jesus is killed. He's been stripped and nailed to a cross. And then he was wrapped in grave clothes, but he unwrapped those, right? He's not in them. They said they're laying in there. So when you come back to life early Sunday morning, what's Jesus wearing? What clothes does he have? Could there be a gardener shack nearby? And he's like, I'm just going to slip into the uniform here. Got the name badge, Al. It'll work, right? He's got no clothes, right? So here he is in the garden. He looks like a gardener. Now, I don't know. That's just my, my, my friend Bruce and my imagination. But 
He doesn't look like glowing. He's not in super duper bright clothes. He looks like a gardener. He might be holding flowers. He might be, you know, one lady on their way out this morning said, you know, she was stooped down to look at the tomb. She might have been bent down weeping. He might have had flowers down low. He picked and handed to her. I don't know. He looks, he's acting. Something's making her think he's the gardener in that moment. And here's the question. Why was he in the garden? Why was he there? Think of, this is what I was thinking at the beginning. He could have showed up in Pilate's bedroom. Remember me? Remember the guy you whipped and the guy you wrapped in purple and the guy you shoved thorns on and the guy you said, don't you know I have a thorn? You remember me? If Pilate was afraid on Friday, how's he feeling? Right? He could have showed up at the chief priest. Remember the guy you spit on and mocked? Remember the guy you thought wasn't the eternal son of God? Remember me? He's not doing that. He's not doing how you like me now. He's not in their face. He's in a garden. Looking like a gardener for some reason. Right? Why was he there? Why is he in a garden? Why is he doing this? You think you've gone through all this ordeal and you're just going to be hanging out in a garden. And it gets to the point. Jesus died and rose and is calling your name. He's in the garden calling people. He's not gloating. He's not putting it in people's face. He doesn't, he doesn't even need to worry about that. So what is it that causes Mary to recognize him? He says her name. Mary. He's in the garden calling Mary. And when he says her name, there's something familiar. There's something personal. It's, you, it's her. And she, then she recognizes him. This isn't the gardener. This is Jesus. Isaiah 43, 1 says, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. That's not a generic call. It's a personal call. When he says Mary's name, she knows it's the Lord, and he's alive, and he's calling people. He's not worried about gloating over people in victory. He's calling people into his family. This is what he said earlier in John 10. He said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. He's calling people into his family, into his sheep pen here in this illustration, by name, calling, come into my family. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And I and the Father are one. There's a call of Jesus to us by name to follow him. And when you're in his family, in his care, you're not lost. He says, I don't lose them. So we have this point that that Jesus died and rose and is calling your name. He called Mary's name and he calls the disciples' name and he's calling people's name today. One more interesting detail there. Maybe you caught it and wondered about it. Was Jesus harsh with Mary? Did you you see what he said to her? He said, do not cling to me. Like, what's that? The King James Version says, "Uh, don't touch me. Think, wow, well, he's, you know, died and raised and would rather, you know, I don't know what you have. I'm all healthy now. Keep social distancing. Is that what's going on? No. I think she's doing a really, 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 really long hug. 
right? She was just so discouraged, so defeated. She's weeping. Now he's alive, calling her name, and I think just, woof, she's not letting go. I don't think he's mean at all. This is a continuum. Don't keep on holding me, right? Okay, it's been long enough. So it's not that he's being mean. It's not that he doesn't want to be touched. You can't keep holding me here. You can't keep hanging on to me here. Look at the reason, he says, not because it's an awkward hug. He says, I haven't yet gone to the Father. So you're holding on to me here is against my purposes. He said, I've risen, and my next purpose is to ascend back to God the Father. And when he ascends back to God the Father, the next thing happens is he sends the Holy Spirit in his place. So in John, Jesus said earlier, he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to go back to the Father, so you can't hold on to me here in one place and one time, because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, who can be in all places, to be with us, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So he's saying, don't hold on to me in this moment for this time and this place because I'm going to the Father so that I can send the Holy Spirit who can be to each person at any place and any time. And he says, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. You won't be alone. It won't be as if I'm gone. I'm coming to you to be with you and to be in you. So that's what he says there to, to Mary. I don't think he was harsh with her at all. He's saying... He died, he rose, he's calling her name, and he's inviting, he's inviting in. And notice what he said there at the end. He says, go to my brothers. He says, don't hang on to me. Go to my brothers and say, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. He's just saying the door is open now for you to have the same father. Saying he's my father, but now he can be your father. You're brought into the family. You're brought into the connection. He died. He rose. He's calling your name. So I want to look at a few things this means. What does this mean? What does all this mean that we've just seen? Jesus has risen from the dead. He's calling Mary's name. He's calling your name. What does it mean today? First of all, it means that there is a reversal of sin and death. Sin and death are reversed. This is just such an amazing turnaround. Death started in a garden, right? Adam and Eve, God made them, and they were in a perfect garden, and things were perfect, and a tempter came and spoke to a woman and tempted her, and it brought sin and death in a garden. And now Jesus is buried in a garden, and he raises in a garden, and again, he comes alongside a woman and calls her (laughs) to life in a garden. It's reversed. It's all reversed. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that, he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The worst thing that happens to you is not that you die. This is, death actually has a sting. There's a worse thing than dying. There's a sting of death. What does he say? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. When you die, the sting is that you will stand before God, who's holy. And we will stand before him as sinners. And the power of sin is the law, and we will be found to be lawbreakers. None of us is righteous. We all have sin. We all fall short. But this is the whole reversal. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He entered death righteously. He did not sin. He did not break the law. So when he enters death, there's no power over him. There's no sting. There's nothing more to happen. He's righteous. And so he defeats the power of sin and death. It's been reversed. So in Jesus, you enter into that reversal that when you die in Christ, you're declared righteous. And death doesn't hold you. And you're raised with the Lord. So it's reversed. That's what Easter means. A reversal for you, for us. The second one is that then you can have it. You can be forgiven and have eternal hope. It's not abstract. It's for you personally. We look here in Romans 10. It says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So it's not just something you say. It's not just something you think. It's both. I say this. I believe this. I'm confessing Jesus is Lord. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. I love that thought. Your faith in Jesus means that when you arrive before him, he's not saying, oh, not you. Not you. I know your story. I know what you did. I know where you've been. I know how you failed. Not you. He doesn't say that, right? In Jesus, this is you're not put to shame. It's not thrown back in your face. You've been forgiven. You're cleansed. He says, yeah, come in here. Come to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. You're not brought into shame. So you can be forgiven and have eternal hope. That's what it means. The third thing it means is that you can be filled with the Spirit. That you personally can be filled with the Spirit of God. Romans 8.14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. On the surface, you think, wait, what's this son language? This is, this is exclusive language. What's this about? You have to understand in this culture, in this time, the sons had the inheritance rights. The oldest son had all got the larger share, and the sons inherited the name and the heritage and the family and the blessing of the father. So to, for men and women to be called a son of God, it means that men and women and boys and girls receive the full inheritance blessing inclusion it's actually inclusive language that everyone is included in this to be received the spirit of an adoption as son you're brought into the family and here it says we cry abba father so abba is almost it's an endearing daddy father saying you're invited in to not just have this sort of formal and fearful relationship but also a personal and loving relationship It says, for the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He comes to live in you and confirm that right to you. It says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, you will inherit the blessing of the Son of God, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. There's a reality to following Jesus. It doesn't just make everything better. It doesn't make trouble go away we're going to still live on this earth and still suffer and when we suffer trusting jesus we have this huge promise of glorifying being glorified with him so that's the third one easter means you can be filled with the spirit and adopted into his family and have that confirmation right in your life and the fourth one is that you can join the mission jesus doesn't just call you and say great eat all the food you want life's good over here he immediately 
sends you on mission. What do you tell Mary to do? Go tell the boys, right? Go tell them. You have a mission. Go. As soon as Jesus calls his disciples, he says, all right, you have a mission. Go tell the world. Go make disciples. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. He sends us out. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. So he's, he's immediately, when you come into Jesus' family, this, I want you on mission. I want you telling other people. I want you reaching other people. Make them disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So it's this great picture that coming to Jesus means you have a mission and a purpose to spread this eternal good news to anyone, to everyone. So we have this, that Jesus died and rose and is calling your name. Right now, today. Maybe he's calling you in a sense of a comeback. You've known this, you've wandered, you're out there, and you're here today and you're saying, you know what? I need to come back and follow Jesus. I need to get back on mission with him. That's a response you can make. You can make a first-time response and say, I want to confess Jesus as Lord. I want to be brought into the family. I want to be uh, adopted. You can also have a sense of, I'm going to respond by really listening to the voice of the Spirit. When the Spirit is directing me. If you're filled with the Spirit, he wants to direct you and lead you. And maybe you haven't been listening. You say, okay, I'm going to listen to the Holy Spirit. I want to get on mission for him. So let me just pray, and in a quiet moment, I just want you to ask the Lord to talk to you. Say, Lord, what are you speaking to me? Lord Jesus, we come before you and praise you as raised, as defeating the power of sin and death in the grave. And we know you called Mary's name. And you're calling our name. And I just pray in this quiet moment we would listen to what you're saying. Lord Jesus, let us respond. Let us respond in an obedient yes. Let us respond and confess that you are Lord. Let us respond and say, I want to follow your voice. Let us respond and say, I want to be a part of your mission. I want to tell others. Thank you that you're calling us today, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a chance even uh, as we wrap up our service, if you want to pray with someone or talk with someone about what we've been learning, we'll have some people up here. We'll pray with you. We'll pray for you. If you want to respond in faith that Jesus would love to talk to you about that today, and then encourage whatever he was just telling you to do it, to obey, to do what he's asking you to do. Let's stand and and worship our, our living hope.